Greetings, my Revolution friends. So if you're watching this live, we're going to have a fantastic hour with our guest today, Julia. If you're listening to this on the podcast, you're going to hear some fantastic stuff about where we're going now in terms of balancing the demand and responsibility uh, in the EV landscape. Because of course, what we're all trying to do is make the world a better place. We're not looking at just switching from one thing to another. We've got to take a step forward. We've got to improve. We've got to make things better. And that's the plan and ambition. So Julia Poloskanova, welcome. How are you? Hi, Roger. Really great to be talking to you. I'm really good calling from uh, Latvia today, where there are electric cars as well. I can tell you all about that as well if we have time. Well, we're going to talk about a lot of things and we'll find the time. So just on that point, we have um, an hour, um, which obviously is slipping by already. We'll have guests that will take their questions um, for the audience. We'll do that live. Um, if we can bring people on the stage, we will. But if we've got too many, we'll, we'll just take the question, give the acknowledgement and we'll go through that way. So you've got no idea what's going to happen, Julia. That's something I think is always good to look forward to. But let me just explain to people who you are and then we'll crack on with uh, the poll that we've had out there to try and get a flavour of what people think and then we'll go through a bunch of questions. So you are the Senior Director of Vehicles and E-Mobility Supply Chains uh, for the European Union at Transport and Environment. I knew that already because I've seen you in action on stage in Brussels and other places. Um, I've heard you ask questions, for example, at the FD Future of the Car Summit. And it's always great to hear your opinion. You know, you're, you're, you're very smart. So your role is about advising policymakers in Brussels on how to change uh, to sustainable uh, mobility, how that can be achieved. You've got a bachelor's degree in politics and French. Uh, from the Goldsmith College in London and an MSc in Energy Engineering from the Harriet Watt University. And you joined Transport and Environment in June 2015 and you now lead the Clean Vehicles Programme that's responsible for all car related work. So that includes policy and projects on car emissions and e-mobility and specifically, and we'll talk a lot about this, on sustainable batteries and infrastructure for electric vehicles. So in my notes here, I see you previously worked for the Mayor of London. Which which mayor was that, Julia? <laughs> I dare say it was actually Boris Johnson. Uh, so I worked in Brussels. So I was in the European office. So it's more of a civil service, as, as you you know, more than, than, than a political uh, role, uh, where I worked on equality. And, and back then, actually, the mayor was very ambitious when it came to policies around electrification, for example, electrifying taxis in London, ULES, etc. Yeah, the mayor indeed was very ambitious. Not always ambitious for the right reason. <laughs> it perhaps should be said. But let's not go down that rabbit hole. Um, so, Julia, the way we always like to do this, regular listeners uh, will know, or people watching the show will know, uh, we have a poll. The poll question this time was, what do you think will make or break the success of global EV adoption? Uh, we always leave an answer which is, you know, tell us your own thing, leave a comment. Um, few people did that. But the three answers that we've got were 41% said policy um, will break the success of global EV adoption. 20% said it's down to vehicle manufacturers. Um, it's only a fifth. But then the second answer was raw materials. Now, I'm going to confess as to which one I answered, actually. I put raw materials, and I know we're going to talk a bit about that. Um, if you did the poll, can I ask you which one you did? I'm going to guess, but you tell me. 
I did indeed. I did vote, and and I put policy as as it turns out, a majority of people. I'm quite happy to hear this result. I think there are a number of barriers in this transition, and I fully agree that actually the top barrier today is the supply of raw materials. We need to make sure it's enough. We need to make sure it's sustainable, and we need to make sure it's also diversified globally, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But regardless of which barrier we look at, in my view, it's actually the courage of policymakers to set the policy, clear signals, clear support to get us there. When transition gets hard, then when it's really real, that's when you get people questioning it, people getting scared, lots of work needs to be done. And it's only smart policy and strong support that can get you through that. Otherwise, whether it's raw materials, charging or anything, the, the, you know, the concern is that you might just roll back because it's hard. And that's yes. why I put policy. Yeah. Well, no, I, I, I can, I sort of get that. I mean, I, I, I'll be honest, I put um, raw materials simply because it seems to me the upstream supply chain for all these gigafactories is a place that, that, you know, an arena that takes such a long time. And I'm not an expert in that. I've only recently, the last few years, got to understand that. Um, but obviously, it's a bit like, you know, being a chef or, you know, making a cake. If you haven't got the ingredients, it doesn't matter what you want to make, you can't make it. So that's not maybe the best analogy, a cake as a battery, but I think you, you can tell what I mean. <laughs> um, so, so look, can you, can you again, br briefly give us that sense then of, of what you do uh, at the company, at Transport Environment, and, and basically what that organisation is trying to do and is actually doing? Can you give us a flavour of that, please? Yes, absolutely. So Transport and Environment, or TNE, as we're often known for short, uh, so we are an NGO. Uh, we are today the largest European green transport group. And what we do daily is work around shaping policies. So this is actually really number one thing we do, as well as campaigning more locally and, and doing a lot of research in all manner of sustainable mobility options and fields, from cars to trucks to planes. Our goal is to make sure that our mobility system is zero emissions, affordable, and has the least overall environmental impact on our planet. What does it mean daily for my work? So I lead all the work to do with electrification of cars and trucks, as well as batteries and supply chains. So I work on policies around sustainable batteries. Today, I work a lot on European industrial policies around securing critical materials to solve exactly those concerns that you mentioned, Roger, you know, how do we actually get that stuff to Europe on time and responsibly? But also one of the biggest, uh, my, my, my achievements, achievements of many people, not just me, but I personally feel excited to be part of that team was actually to work to secure uh, a 2035 phase out in Europe of fossil cars so that all new cars and vans from 2035 in Europe are zero emission, largely electric. So that was really exciting. We have it now in place and we hope that we keep it that way so that strong signal drives the transformation well now there's an interesting arena that point about having deadlines on which things can happen and people of course look look at that as two ways they either see it as a carrot or they see it as a stick if you like and quite recently in the uk there's been some discussion around maybe changing that um which wouldn't be good at all we'll, we'll see what happens in that regard but li listen what i'd really like us to get to by the end of this conversation is you know as this as the ev industry because it's still a relatively new thing as it grows you know 
know, how can car makers, policy makers, consumers, how do they collaborate? How do they collectively contribute to make and help you and others who are scoping and shaping this um, a sustainable and ethical supply chain for EVs? Because like I said right at the beginning, there is no point going on this journey of switching to electric vehicles if we simply swap one big issue for another one, you know, We've got to make things better. So that's something I hope, you know, don't answer that as a question. It's not sort of a question. It's really more a general kind of theme, if you like. Um, but, you know, how do you see where we are now in terms of Europe in the fact that China has had such, or Asia in general, let's not just say China. We're talking about South Korea. We're talking about Japan. We're talking about Vietnam. We're talking about many parts of Asia, but particularly the Chinese, have got such a domination in the whole arena, particularly supply chain. They've got more of the gigafactories than anyone else. Recently, the United States is now trying to, to catch up, doing a great job in terms of the impetus for that, in terms of money, for sure. And it would appear policy. Um, where is Europe in this? Because how can I put it? I feel like we're a bit of a sort of meat in the sandwich of all of this. Where are we at the moment in Europe, Julia? So maybe uh, just to take a little step back, right, to look a little bit at the market. I think what we are seeing everywhere globally is that, sorry for my language, the shit got real. Electrification is really happening. 10 million electric cars were actually sold up until now. That's a lot. And more than half of them were sold in China. Right. So indeed, in China today, a quarter of all the sales around that are actually battery electric. And, but the second largest region when it comes to the market for electric vehicles remains Europe. So we are still very important in this when it comes to our market. Chinese, Asian, American, all manner of companies want to come to Europe to actually set up manufacturing plant, produce vehicles to sell it to the market. In Europe, around 15 percent of all sales are battery electric. And then we have America at seven. So this is just at 7% and they're catching up fast. So this is just to set the scene for the market a little bit. But what is happening today is that the competition is really fierce, right? It's not only about climate, though, of course, strict climate goals and just, you know, look around, look at what's happening with the weather. Governments are racing to decarbonize their mobility systems. But on top of that, we have realized that as we decarbonize, we need to capture the value. The value is in producing those vehicles, producing batteries, and especially in the critical metals that go into those batteries and those cars. So some today say that lithium is the new oil. And ultimately, I do believe that the geopolitical race of the 21st century will be played in critical metals, colorful things like nickel and copper and lithium, and not black oil or black fossils, right? And because of that, because of the combination of rushing to decarbonize, to actually live on this planet still, and at the same time, the fact that everything is transitioning and we need to capture the jobs, the business from this new decarbonization technologies together mean that there is fierce competition on who it will be that, that will actually, well, that will actually have all those jobs and will secure the metals for themselves first. 
Yeah, now let's try and get this in a sort of sequence, a, a sort of order, because on the one hand, what you've just outlined and the challenge of finding all of those critical raw materials and then having them so we can build the batteries in the gigafactories and then put those batteries into electric vehicles. How do we sequence all of this? Because, you know, what's the EU government's policy and role, if you like, in encouraging electric vehicle adoption? Because in a way, given what, as you're explaining things, and a lot of people know the challenge in how long it takes to build a mine and so on and so forth, we, we want to pace ourselves here, don't we? If we suddenly clicked our fingers and said, everybody should buy an EV tomorrow, that's not going to work, is it? I mean, we, we haven't got the ability to do that. So how do we calibrate this? We've got these deadlines now, 2035, etc. They're different ones in other countries. I think it's 2025 in Norway, who've, of course, you know, really cracked on with this. But they haven't got a big auto industry. That is a relatively smaller country. It is a relatively affluent country. But they've done so many of the right things when others have just sort of looked from the sidelines and, and done nothing much at all. Um, so how does the EU... Let's Let's talk about Europe particularly here. How does it calibrate this so that we get it right? It's a bit like, how do they get it to be Goldilocks? Not too fast, not too slow, just right. Yes. So what we have today in Europe are strong market regulations around stimulating the electric vehicle market, right? We had them now for a few years, for example, vehicle car CO2 standards in Europe for 2020, which is why in 2020, the sales of electric cars really um, were exponentially growing in Europe. They grew five times by 2021. So we have that. Now, then what we've realized a few years back now, right, we can't just do stimulate the market. We also, we need to learn from our mistakes in solar, for example, we also need to produce the key components. So we started a lot of action to attract battery industry to Europe. And a lot has happened actually there. Europe was on schedule uh, before this year, I'll mention it at the end, but Europe was actually on schedule to be the second largest battery cell producer globally after China by 2030, even by 2025. So we had uh, lots of uh, support, but first was the uh, signal in the market. The market is going electric. So you create business case for the industry. Battery factories started happening. And then Europe added some industrial policy, some funding, the European Battery Alliance framework, for example, to make sure that European companies also produce these batteries. So we were quite successful in that. And, you know, it's a good question. Why did we not realize this earlier? But then we realized, well, actually, batteries on their own are not enough. We need the upstream. We need the stuff that goes into batteries. And that really actually is quite recent. And we've realized that first, as Europeans, we don't mine much in Europe. We are not a mining superpower. But second, we also haven't secured critical raw materials globally. And largely, even if we have secured these raw materials, for example, we mine some lithium in Portugal. But I kid you not, because we don't have any capacity to process it, we have to right. send it to China, and then it comes back as a battery, if we're lucky, or as an electric vehicle. So we are are now finally catching up with the supply chain. And just to finish, China has realized this long time ago. China has many strengths. Uh, of course, they also have a very strong domestic market, allows them scale. But they also, they didn't just do the 
market. They started to actually secure and build the value chain a lot sooner. They started in the 80s around that. So, of course, mm. today where we are in 2023, they have the economies of scale, expertise, know-how, skills, everything ready to do this quickly. And we are really behind and we can't move as quickly because even if we wanted to build all those vehicles and even if we secured raw materials, which is a big if and we're still trying to do that now in Europe, we still wouldn't have some of the expertise and skills to build that. And that's really an issue that we just don't have the scale and, and we have to build it a lot faster in a lot more competitive world compared to the 80s and the 90s when the Chinese were doing that. Right. Well, there's an awful lot in, in what you've just described there. And I, I mean, I've also find it surprising that America particularly, but, but Europe as well, for sure, didn't really take notice properly of what China had been doing um, all those years ago. And then when the public document, which, you know, was there for all to see, Made in China 2025 emerged in 2015, almost a decade ago, all of this plan, this grand plan, was was there for all to see. So it, it does feel it's not like we've been caught napping. We, we've seen what's been going on. And um, in some ways you could say, well, the Chinese have only done what we should have done, but didn't. But that's, you know, what's happened has happened. We have to deal with the here and now and, and, and look to the future. So one area, you mentioned raw materials. Now, Around the world, geology is what it is. The stuff in the ground is where it is. We can't kind of change that. But what we can change is where it's processed. And a lot of that processing is industrial, um, has been, but doesn't need to always be dirty, if for want of a better phrase. And we've got more of an opportunity to reshore that into the European continent back from China than, than maybe where the stuff is in, in the ground. So what's happening in that regard? Are things moving there, whether it's legislation, technology, money. What's what's happening in the processing of materials that you're seeing, Julia, that you that's, can share with Yes, us? that's that's a really excellent question, Roger, because actually we as TNE have been really vocal exactly around that to bring, you know, pushing the EU to really focus on those processing stages to bring that into Europe, which is really important to stress here. It's exactly the same processes and engineering and chemicals that you need to recycle as well, to properly recover metals. So it's no regrets for both industries. Here, it's important indeed uh, to stress that Europe has woken up to this and is trying to do that. What are we doing? We now have European Critical Raw Materials Act. So it's a new law. It's a draft law that was announced now in March this year, which is now quickly going through the parliament to be agreed. And the idea there is that first we actually identify those strategic materials where which we want to onshore. Uh, then two is we actually set goals. And rather than looking only at extraction, there is a specific goal set for processing. And the idea is to onshore 40% of processing. So from all the demand we have in 2030, for example, of lithium, we want to make sure that Europe processes here at least 40%, which means 60% still processed abroad, right? So there's still a lot of potential for cooperation, for development policy, etc. We as TNE looked at critical metals in batteries. We looked at nickel, cobalt, and lithium. 
And we see that this 40% goal is completely feasible. For lithium, we can actually go a lot higher. Lithium is really everywhere. It's quite ubiquitous. There's various technologies to do that, for example, from geothermal brines, of which we have many in Europe. So we can really do a lot more than 40%. So we have that target in Europe. And the last thing that's proposed within that act is then to do this via strategic projects, so a new framework, to actually select those uh, most promising projects that do this to high standards and accelerate permitting. So we actually get that stuff faster in Europe. So that's what Europe is trying to do. Uh, we're also trying to put some funding into that, etc. It's really important to remember for everyone on the call that China does not actually mine or extract all of the raw materials that they're using. They actually have a really great uh, network globally. So they secure them via various partnerships with other countries and they bring them to China to process. So there's nothing to say that we can't do that in Europe. And we can leverage the skills that we have in the chemicals industry in Europe to do exactly that. Yeah. Yeah. You, you mentioned the chemicals industry. That's the crazy thing. When you look at certainly here in the UK, we've got and have had for decades a very strong and extremely successful chemical industry. Um, I know for sure Belgium. I used to live in Belgium. It's got a very significant and, uh, and, and strong industry, too. And of course, in, in many other countries, Germany likewise. So given it's an electrochemical device, you would have thought that we would be well placed for this. So I think we just need to reconcile a lot of, well, what is this? What do we need to do? And how can we get on with it? Um, just quick message for the audience, by the way, Julia. Anyone who has a question, please put it in the chat. Um, obviously, if you're listening and, <laughs> to this on a podcast, can't do that. But um, we're reliant on seeing some questions come in from our audience. But let me just come back on one of the points you made there about licensing. Now, I have learned over the last few years, as I mentioned earlier, mining takes time for all sorts of reasons. One of the things that it takes time is indeed licensing, where where can you mine? How much can you extract? What will it mean? Can I just can you just reassure me and, and, and listeners as well that this accelerating licensing doesn't mean that we don't care about people anymore. We're just going to rush things through and not listen to public opinion and, you know, just say, well, look, there's a bigger picture here. Just, you know, suck it up. Um, how can we speed up licensing without doing it badly, perhaps? It is absolutely feasible. So what Europe wants to do, and Europe is trying to do exactly that, is to make sure that all of the environmental and social safeguards and rules around community engagement are all in place. They're not watered down. But at the same time, we are cutting the administrative procedures, right? The processing time that these things take. And it's not just about, you know, criticizing someone in a local authority, but actually enabling them, giving them more skills, digital tools, etc., to do this faster. So we're going faster on processing, but we on processes, on, on approvals themselves, but we are actually keeping the, the, the environmental rules in place. And I really wanted to maybe add here, and I think that's really important to stress, um, all of the practices, technologies, uh, ways of doing things to do mining responsibly exist. 
some, you know, in, in, if we look at waste disposal, for example, or tailings, as it's called with, with mines, we need to be doing dry tailings and filtered tailings and stack them. We know we need to do this, but we don't require every company today to do this. Same with water, for example, same with biodiversity. We know what we need to do, right? It's just about doing this consistently everywhere in the world. And that is where the importance of policy comes in. It's about really policymakers requiring those high standards, raising them where need to be, right? But once the bar is high and everyone's doing that, we just go really quick on, on the process and, and we can do that. Generally, I believe that especially today where people are so concerned and aware of these problems, doing things right not cutting corners by mining companies is the fastest way to do things in places like Europe. You might think, oh, well, I have to waste all this time talking to the people, you know, around the mine. But actually talking to all of them will make sure that at least many of them will support your project because they will understand what is going on. Ultimately, it's their water, their land. Yeah. And, and I think a case in point quite recently, and I'm sure you know a bit about this, I, I know something of it, was in Serbia. There is a lithium resource called Yada, and um, I think it's Rio Tinto ha have that. And there were a number of issues around the process, uh, the journey, the proposition, the explanation of it, the presentation of it, such that it was then, you know, the license was revoked. And now a country which isn't in the EU wants to be a member of the EU that potentially could be incredibly significant to the continent of Europe, let's not even be political, is potentially now not going to tap that resource. So how do we not just manage, if you like, policy and legislation, how do we manage public opinion better around this? Because that's an example of it not going well. How do we ensure that it doesn't go like that in other countries where there's resource in the ground? Yes, I, I, I would say we need another two hours to touch upon that question because that's, that's, that's a, that's a mine in itself. I, I, I think. Uh, I will just raise two things here. First is to say that uh, I think we just all need to be aware that things come from somewhere. Everything that is around us, uh, your computer, you're now hopefully watching this uh, on a table, you might be sitting at a chair. It all came somehow one way or another from extracting materials to make things, right? It's just part of living that we need these things. What we need to do is we need to make sure we do this with lower impact and improve practices. But the second thing I would say, I also do not at the same time, having said the first point, I do not agree with many mining companies who just want now some kind of awareness or marketing campaigns for sustainable mining. Yes, Actually, thing. some Exactly. Some people who are against practices are doing this for a reason, because they lived through a disaster, they had their water, for example, poisoned, etc., etc. So the best way for people to actually change their opinion is to see that the mining companies have changed and are consistently applying high standards, are transparent, are including people, not only during the mine, but also post-mine times, right? So post-mine closure is really important because ultimately that ore degrades and what will be with that place 20 years later? We need to know. Especially, you mentioned it a few times, just to, to reiterate and explain to people, tailings. This is the material that comes out of the mine, whether it's a tunneled mine or an open cast mine or whatever. There's stuff that has to go somewhere. And in some places, there are some processes and some mining practices 
that don't do that properly. For example, I know I heard this from uh, Ed Conway, who, to your point about everything has to come from somewhere, his book Material World wonderfully illustrates this across, well, across human history, basically, to, to, to explain it as the book's written. But nickel being extracted in Indonesia has a lot of the material then in proximity to the ocean being dumped in the ocean and then damaging that marine ecosystem. So, yeah, there are ways in which now um, I think the reality of mining well, like you said a moment ago, it's always been there, but we've, you know, we've had co cobalt mines weren't invented to make electric vehicles. Cobalt's been around for decades and decades, and so has the mining, and so has the way in which the mining has happened. That isn't to say it's right, that isn't to say it doesn't need to be improved, but to simply associate it to electric vehicles, renewable energy and batteries, as though it's some sort of new ogre on the scene, is just ridiculous. And, you know, we don't call oil extraction mining because it isn't, but that's a process, an industrial process that has, as we now know, a massive consequence that lasts for a lot longer, you know, and the combustion engine fuel that goes into a car, the, the, the petrol, the diesel, when it's burnt, that's it gone forever. You know, there's, there's nothing ever to be gained again. Um, and I've always been a believer, I don't know where you are on this, that we've, we've got a twin imperative in encouraging electric vehicles. It's clean air, urban air quality, and a reduction of CO2. Why is it, Julia, that mostly people then, especially when they're trying to push back on EVs, only talk about CO2 reduction and often don't even reference air quality? How have we got into that place, do you think? Mm. So it's a good question, but can I add one point to the point you made before? Because I think that's really, really important around extraction, right? Sure. So we constantly talk about mining of metals for electric cars. I think today, I don't know, people, wherever they hear word electric car, they probably think of a mine, which is just so unfair because today as a society for our mobility and energy needs we extract 15 billion of tons of coal oil and natural gas a year every year and it's burned it's used we need it again it's the running costs of our economy at the same time today and we already have a lot of electric cars trucks etc on the road we we mine around 7 million tons of critical metals, right? So there's a million and there's a billion a year. And our analysis that we've done recently shows that even, you know, by 2050, when we would need to electrify most road transport, we would still be using 30 to 40 million critical minerals. And this is capital cost. You mine it, right? You use it, you build that battery, you don't need another material to burn. That's that's used there for years. And of course, we maybe will talk about it later, but that we can then actually recycle, right? The, the mining is not the only option. There's recycling. There's also how big your battery is. That's also very important. So there's a lot of things we can do to reduce that consumption. So I think it's just really important to put the billions extracted today versus millions in the future that we are now working on policies to mine in a better way. Uh, yeah. But you're, yeah, you want go to come on. in here? Or, no, go on. Yeah, no, just I, I, I of course <laughs> want to actually honor your question as, as well. I think this is something that's uh, really interesting depending on where you are. So if you are really locally in a city and you talk to a local mayor, right, or a local alderman in the Netherlands, they do talk about air quality, number one, not CO2, right? So at that local level, it's all about air quality. However, at that local level, it's not always an electric car that's a solution, but just no car, right? Public transport. 
etc. So there's other ways to, to solve that. However, at the national level, at the wider level, societal level, ever since we have the Kyoto Agreement, the number one priority for governments has been CO2. And I think that's why in the wider discourse, we talk a lot about CO2 and of course, Electric cars is the solution there because we're not burning all that fuel. Uh, they're at least three times better than a diesel car when entire life cycle is taken into account, even mining, right? So they're just the perfect, the best technology we have. And I think it's this discourse between the broader, you know, national, international debate and, and policy, which is more about CO2 versus local, which is still a lot about air quality, but where I think we agree and people, policymakers agree it's electric vehicles, but they all we see that the solutions are not just in electric vehicles, hmm. which is, of course, true. Well, you referenced recycling there, so I'm going to uh, use that moment to bring in uh, Daniel's question and Arne's question. Uh, Daniel says, I guess the policies also include um, the recycling of EVs. And um, then Arnie says, uh, hi, Julia, does Europe have a firm policy in place already to process end of life batteries? Currently, the black mass lithium from recycled batteries, heavily um, energy intensive. Currently, most end of life batteries go back to Asia for recycling, which sounds perverse, doesn't it? Because you've already told us and, and if people didn't know, they were probably shocked. All of these minerals go to China to get processed. And then if we've got all these gigafactories in Europe and America, they'll get shipped all the way back again to those factories to go into the back. It doesn't make any sense. Surely we're not going to do carry on doing the same thing with recycling as well. So what can you tell Daniel and Arnie, please? Yes, so first around policies, and then I'll answer specifically the question around black mass and the fact that it happens in China, because it is a problem and we are also working on that a lot. So around policies, absolutely yes. Europe as the big consumer continent absolutely gets it that, you know, waste is actually an asset and we can recover a lot of metals and materials from that. We have policies, number one, to recycle cars at the end of their life. That includes electric cars. So we need to collect them and we need to recycle up to 95% of materials in that car by weight. And we're now reviewing that piece of legislation to even improve it. And the second policy, which has really been a historic agreement that Europe just recently reached on the first ever European sustainable battery regulation. And some of the provisions in that battery regulation are ended around recycling. So they require both to actually uh, recycle the biggest, largest bulk of the battery, but they also set specific specific targets per material. So there are targets on lithium specifically, on cobalt, on nickel. So we really cannot waste them. We have to recover them. And all of these provisions are coming into effect in the next few years. So that's for policy. The policy is there. What is lacking is similarly to the EV market, as we talked at the beginning. What is lacking is strong industrial policy to go alongside these frameworks to make sure that we do this in Europe and we actually uh, capture this this value. What happens a lot in Europe today is we do get the batteries at the end of life. We often do, I mean, everything's called recycling, but you in recycling, you have two processes. One is the pre-treatment. So you get your battery, you discharge it, you test that it's safe, you dismantle it, right? You do the initial shredding. So this is called today also recycling. We do it in Europe, but that's not where the value is. Once we've shredded it, we actually get to what is called black mass. So this this is where you have nickel, copper, 
Alicium cobalt, all the metals together, it actually looks like a black mass. And that specific bit there, that's where we require processing expertise. The same processing expertise we talked about earlier. That material recovery does not happen in Europe for a number of reasons. One, we don't have expertise at industrial scale. So even if we got this and captured it in Europe, we wouldn't be able to do it right now. We are building that now. Two, because actually we don't have good provisions on keeping it in Europe. So many Asian companies are really good at snatching that black waste and actually transporting this to places like China, also South Korea, where they have factories and the entire ecosystem is there. And number three, actually, it's also because of energy prices. It is an energy intensive process. So if we don't support European recyclers doing this, it will always be cheaper, actually, to do it in places where electricity is cheaper, which is also China. So for a number of these reasons, it's not happening today. And it really needs this industrial support to make sure that European and American and other companies in Europe are scaling that material recovery part of recycling. Right. Again, there's a lot in that answer. But let me ask you about this then. You talk about policy. You talk about in you know industrial applications, but aren't we really mostly here talking about money, you know, or, or we're absolutely talking about money in the same way that we're seeing? Well, we've seen for a decade or more, as we mentioned earlier, significant money coming from the Chinese government to subsidise, support, help set up, initiate, whatever you want to call it, a lot of these industries. Now we're seeing the same thing happen in America with the Inflation Reduction Act, and are we not in danger in Europe of? having these edicts, these laws, these regulations, these policies, but not because we don't live in the United States of Europe, despite what some people in in this country think. Um, you can't just conjure up three or four or five hundred billion euros to support many of these things in the same way you can in America, you can in, um, in China. So isn't there a big missing part of the jigsaw here in terms of subsidy and money? It is absolutely missing in Europe. But let me first say that in a perfect world, it is actually very efficient and cost efficient to set strong policy, especially in a big, attractive market like Europe, and get companies to invest and build businesses. So it, it is absolutely feasible, right? You set a renewables target or an EV target because the market is so diverse. People will buy these vehicles, businesses come and they fill the supply chain. So that is normally how it should work in my view. And that's also from my perspective as coming from an NGO is the cost effective way from the purposes of the public, of the consumer purse. However, recently we've seen, we've talked about global competition, the rules of the game have changed. Whether we like it in Europe or we don't, Chinese have been subsidizing their players for a long time. And now America, you know, the US uh, IRAs is a big game changer because we're not actually competing with the Chinese. They're so way ahead of us. We today are competing with Americans who will build battery factories first. And, and that's not helpful us in, you know, in the European context. So yes, I do agree with you. We have a number of regulations. I mentioned some of them. We have European battery regulation to ensure sustainable batteries. We have Critical Raw Materials Act to onshore the supply. Uh, we have a number of other things, for example, Net Zero Industrial Act, that's to really bring the green tech manufacturing. But what all of this lack, even though they really rightly speed up permitting, etc., they lack additional European money, not just for research or piloting, as important as it is. What they lack is supporting commercialization, you know, not the most innovative technology, scaling what is possible today to actually produce, to process, to recycle, 
cycle. Yeah. This we do not have, and that's a real shame. Some of it is happening, but it's happening nationally in places like Germany and France, but it's not happening at the European level, and I don't think Germany or France on their own can compete with the US or China. Yeah, well, it's understandable that Germany and France are leading that way, given that they've got the big auto industries. So, you know, I kind of don't blame them. Um, but there you are. Daniel, by the way, also says, uh, should recycling not be done locally in Europe, allowing proper controls on recycling instead of exporting it to non-EU locations, which is a great point. And I think, well, let me ask you this quick question that I've got a lot more to go through. So I'm trying to be succinct. Um, if in Europe we've got these legislations and these requirements, this criteria for where the material comes from, how we make the battery, how we recycle it, if that isn't happening elsewhere, and I'm not going to point the finger at a particular country or whatever, but are we potentially going to tie our hands behind our back and not be competitive because we're going to put all those other demands and costs on, on the process? How is that looking? Yeah. The way regulation is set, for example, the European battery regulation, it actually applies globally. So regardless where the battery is made, it needs to be under, for example, a certain carbon footprint in the future, right? Or it needs to show that in its entire supply chain up to the mine, there was no forced labor, there was no child labor, etc. Right? So who audits that? Sorry, Julia, who's yeah. going to audit that? Exactly. So I was literally about to say that. So on paper, they are actually, the requirements are not just for Europeans. The problem is how do we actually ensure that they're complied with in the same way as we do in Europe, which is where we come to conversation yeah. around traceability and new ways to do this, such as the battery passport that Europeans now want to put in place. So the idea is no matter where the battery comes from, Vietnam, China, America, etc., there needs to be this digital tracing of the supply chain attached to the battery. Right. L listen, I'm going to move on a bit um, because I know in a recent report, I think your your company um, did it, it was three three scenarios for the demand of battery raw materials. Um, how will the demand for raw materials develop in the next few years? And how is the EU preparing You know, for this? And, and what about the other bit that we've talked about in a few of these meetups that we have with experts is, you know, where do we go with the benefit of batteries, for example, with vehicle to grid? you know, supporting the grid as we have more renewables entering it and second life applications, which of course, you know, can that can fit into it as well. We don't just, you know, if people think we do just chuck batteries away or mash them up into black mass, we don't. A lot of batteries are known for a fact, Nissan Leaf batteries can be extracted, slot in like almost cassettes into facilities to run for energy storage. But, you know, in that report, those scenarios about the demand uh, for battery raw materials, where does recycling fit into it? Is it going to be a bit of it? Is it not going to be anything for about 10 years or where, where does that all come together? So in our report, we looked at uh, how many metals Europe will need uh, in 2030, in 2050 to electrify everything it needs to electrify. So road transport, as well as a lot of batteries for renewables. And what does it mean? And so the business as usual. So if we just do things as we do today, it will mean that by 2050, Europe will require 20 million tons of uh, lithium, manganese, cobalt and nickel, right? So a lot. That's a big consumption. It's still completely within the reserves and etc. But that is quite big. What we also then did is looked at, well, what about 
about looking at demand differently, right? And we touched a lot today on mining, but I think that's a really important bit as well, especially for places like Europe where we don't have much mining ourselves, right? All of the scenarios for raw materials, they always go like that, but they don't have to because this actually we can play with. So we looked at uh, what we call accelerated uh, demand reduction scenario where we, it's a central scenario. So we're not talking about forcing everyone out of cars, not at all. We're just talking about smaller a rightly sized vehicles, so not everyone driving in an electric SUV. Uh, we're also talking about indeed less private kilometers in cars, so people sharing more, people taking a bike more, but within very, you know, very reasonable limits. And also looking at other chemistries, because it's, we don't actually need to make batteries with nickel, with cobalt, right? We can also make them without all of this, just with lithium, so LFP batteries, or even, as of course you know, Roger, as we all know from this year, sodium ion is also good enough for electric vehicles especially small, light, affordable ones. So we looked at this and what we see is in this case, uh, the demand that Europe will need from these critical metals can be halved, just under halved. So we're talking about 11.5 million tons. And then we looked at a really aggressive scenario. So we're doing a lot of these things much faster and we can even be at around 5 million tons. So this is huge, absolutely huge. It just means that what we do in terms of how we use our cars and public transport, for example, has, has a big impact. Within that, we looked at recycling and we actually see that in the short term, so generally, regardless of the scenario, we will need more critical metals than today, right? So we, in the short term, that means more mining. So working on better mining is, is really no regrets. Of course, it depends how much more, right? That's what the scenarios are about. But recycling does begin to play a really big role uh, towards 2030. For example, in Europe, around 10% of all lithium can come from recycling in 2030, and even more 12, 14% of nickel and cobalt. That's really significant, really significant. If you talk about really big, you know, peaks in terms of prices on spot markets or curtailment and shortages, getting 10% of your whole demand is a lot. So that shows you the opportunity there as well. We also looked at opportunities within electric vehicles themselves to provide storage. So things like vehicle to grid. And we see actually that uh, just on the planned trajectory of electric vehicle adoption, these electric cars and trucks that we will have on the road in 2030 can provide 620 gigawatts of power. Wow. Just to put it in perspective, that's the wow. entire current generation capacity of France and Germany. So yeah. the opportunity is huge. It's in recycling, it's in batteries in these vehicles, right? And we actually just need to put in place policies and remove some barriers to really accelerate that and use that opportunity. Yeah, and I think going right back to the beginning of, of what we said and, and a few other people have, have mentioned uh, on, on here is about public opinion, is, is public awareness, is the narrative, is about what the media sort of report and explain. And that, you know, batteries far from being a liability are going to be an asset, are going to be, you know, a saviour. Um, Dadan asked earlier on about, you know, the marketing and the promotion of, of all of this stuff, that it isn't just you've got to do this because we've got a policy. You can't buy that because we've decided. It's got to be that, you know, someone's in charge of all this stuff and someone and people who are informed are trying to make the place better. Um, one thing I think I should mention is, because I only recently learned about this, Japan already has quite an advanced vehicle-to-grid proposition and it's had it for a decade because the CHAdeMO charging protocol 
unlike CCS, has had that ability from, what's the, how do the Americans call it, from the get-go. Um, <laughs> Andy Palmer once explained this to me, I think we were recording something, and he said, at his home in Tokyo, around the time of the crisis, um, from the terrible events that, that, that had happened with the tsunami, the Japanese government mandated this new industry, these electric vehicles with these big batteries, must become part of the energy system, the energy storage system. So indeed they did. And that's how they work today. So in a way, for as much as Japan can often now be kind of pushed to one side in regard to where are we with EVs and I'm not going to talk about particular manufacturers, that's probably going to be wrong, but let's not forget some of what they have done in that country, and they were the architects of battery storage for electronic devices in the 70s and 80s and 90s, which in fact ironically inspired the Chinese to go down that route with electric vehicles. So all this stuff kind of joins up. Um, quick question we had from Zana Lundberg. What are some of the most promising collaborations and innovations in green battery production? Got any snippets there you could share with us? Yeah, absolutely. Look, the most basic one. So we talked a lot about mining, right? But if we look at specific battery manufacturing, most of it is just really energy intensive and it depends on your power source. So one of the simplest and basic things you can do is simply locate your battery factory in the country or near the source of green power nuclear or renewables. And the vast majority of the impact of that battery, that the carbon footprint will be basically gone. So that's, you know, really, it's not an innovation, but it is what needs to happen. We just need to produce these batteries with renewables and we need to have more renewables on the grid. In terms of other innovations, I would say vertical integration is something that for both green, environmental and resilience, so strategic reasons, is really important. So really more vertically integrating more and more steps of the value chain. So, you know, not only do the cell, the final cell in Europe, you also bring cathode manufacturing and then you bring the refining, etc. That saves you a lot of CO2 because of transportation, yeah. but it also makes it more, more resilient. And maybe last thing to give a shout is really a lot of innovation needs to happen, not just in the lab, but really in uh, deployment and commercialization of resource light chemistries. I was actually shocked how quickly the Chinese put a sodium ion battery into an EV model. You know, I, I really applaud <laughs> them, but it shows that the future innovations in the battery space are not only going to be this really fancy, high-performance, solid-state stuff. It's also really simple things to make electric vehicles affordable, accessible, and not so critical metals hungry, right? So why can't we just accelerate production of those chemistries in, in Europe as well? Why don't we do that is really a question. So that's maybe last one to add. Yeah, well, let me just sort of pick up on that then. Um, uh, Asem Said asked a question about, are charging stations considered in your sort of analysis? Because the other side of range and the electric vehicle world that's hurtling towards us is, of course, the charging infrastructure. And there are people, I will put my hand up. You can't see it on the podcast, but I just put my hand up. Uh, I believe that Really, if you think about it logically, it'll be more efficient to have a ubiquitous, reliable, really, really good charging infrastructure rather than ever more, ever bigger batteries. Um, so do you do any work in that arena? You know, are you just batteries and the policy on all of that? Or, or where are you or where is, you know, what you're doing personally and the company doing around um, charging infrastructure? Because surely that's another massive part of this. 
Yes, absolutely. Charging infrastructure is critical and we are working on that a lot as TNE as well. One of the major developments that happened in Europe was the agreement on the so-called alternative fuels infrastructure directive, now regulation. So it certainly became a, a more binding regulation and it actually obliges each country in Europe to provide a certain amount of public power. So public charge points, depending on how many electric cars they have on their territory. It also obliges countries to cover motorways, for example, in electric car chargers, and also uh, has a lot of provisions on harmonizing and simplifying the way we as consumers charge, pay, etc. So to make it a more, you know, a bit like petrol stations, no one ever thinks you just go and, and fill up your tank. Why should it be sometimes so complicated with charges? So a lot has been done and we've been really active in, in that space as well. In our study that I mentioned, we did not look at charges uh, because uh, we assume, given the policies that we have in Europe, that by 2030 already there will be a sufficient coverage of charging, which would allow us to go for smaller batteries and smaller cars, like you said, Roger, so exactly that. Yeah. One thing I would say, because we talked about critical metals, and, and we talk a lot about lithium, cobalt, honestly, every dinner table with a glass of wine, someone t says something about cobalt, but the king of this all, and the biggest gap in our all of our green transition is actually copper. And copper is the one you need to build all those charging stations. Yeah. And I think we don't talk enough about that sustainability or, or sufficiency, etc. So just, just, just to put it out there. I think you're right. But actually, in a few private meetings and discussions I've had uh, this year, I absolutely put copper at the top of that list. So thank you for confirming the fact that I've been getting that right. And again, to your point about um, where we are with LFP, um, we had LFP batteries in Modec electric vans back in 2007. And whilst I'm not a chemist or an engineer, I remember learning the mantra LFP, no C. There is no cobalt, there is no nickel. And that is becoming the ubiquitous chemistry of choice in millions and millions of electric vehicles. There is no cobalt in them or nickel. So your point about innovation liberating a number of these things um, is spot on. Um, listen, am, am I right in thinking some of your background also included, um, and forgive me if I'm wrong here, but um, fuel cells, hyd hydrogen fuel cells? So I did my uh, technical master's indeed specializing in batteries and fuel cells. Right. Uh, I, I, I were very, very, you know, from a more academic and, and neutral position, just wanted to compare them in terms of their benefits, you know, and drawbacks uh, for, for electrification. And, and uh, yes, so I, I did my uh, master's thesis on that. So there's always that, that always hangs around this this discussion about batteries, the complexity, the challenge, the money, the build, all of the things we've been talking about. And people, I hear them a lot say, oh, yes, of course, the ultimate's going to be hydrogen. So you've studied this. You're an expert in this. Is that right? Are they right? I don't think so. I think when it comes to electric cars, just the pure efficiency and technology maturity of where batteries are today pretty much have cancelled out any competition from, from hydrogen. Generally, what I always say, there's, you know, if something completely goes wrong and me and you and so many other people are all wrong, there's still always hydrogen. Indeed, there is another zero emission technology. And in policies around the world, every policy I know, every policy I worked on, they, this policy 
businesses have never in any shape or form prioritized batteries over fuel cells. It's always equal. But for whatever reason, and the reason is the market, the technology, batteries took off and hydrogen cars, even if we have nothing against them, where are they, right? I think it was really, for me, the turning point when uh, Bloomberg New Energy Finance, in its latest electric vehicle outlook, have removed them from their light-duty vehicle forecast because they're just not growing, right? And one thing I would add, I know we're running out of time, just one thing. I think it's really wrong to say that hydrogen vehicles, fuel cells, have less of a problem with critical metals. They do. They're just different critical metals. Yeah, platinum. Platinum's a big Platinum, one, exactly. Yeah. And, and if you look at, at things around concentration or processing of, of platinum, it's just as bad. You know, most of it is also in, in a number of countries. So there's the same problems, different periodic table number. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, we've almost had the hour. We could, as you said earlier about another topic, I've spoken for a couple of hours. We don't want to take everybody's time in doing that. But in the hour we have spent, and thank you for your questions if you've popped them up. I think we've mostly got through um, all of those, uh, which is always good news, Julia. Um, so, yeah, it's a big challenge. We can all see that. But like all things in life, your personal life, the life of a company, a country, a whole you know continent, the world, challenge is what happens every day. We all have to get out of bed get on with it and find a solution. So I'm glad to see all of the work that you're doing. You are shaping decisions and policy making. You are triggering a lot of this. We're, I'm sure, going to bump into each other over the next few weeks and months, maybe at the IAA in September in Munich. Um, because, of course, we all, we all, I'm a European. I want to see the European auto industry sustain, be successful and manage this transition. Um, I don't want anything to the contrary. Uh, but I also want us to get on with it. Um, and a few of the phrases <laughs> you used earlier, Julia, please have the final word. We've got a couple of minutes. So I'll just before I say that, um, thank everyone for doing this. So, yeah, just give us a 60 minute wrap up of what's going to happen next, please, Julia. Yes, happy to do so, even though it's hard. We talked about so many things. <laughs> Look, maybe to start with, I, I would like to say that in, from, from what I see today is that electrification is now real. We are selling these vehicles by the millions. We're installing chargers across the world by the millions. And we're installing battery capacity by gigawatt hours, you know, so that's, that's really scale is here. But at the same time, and that's maybe the second message to, to everyone, as the stuff got real, so has the global competition. And what we find ourselves, uh, where we find ourselves today as Europeans is that even though we have strong regulations and we absolutely need to, they're driving the market, we sometimes lack a similarly robust industrial policy to go with those regulations, to make sure that those batteries are produced in Europe by European companies, right? The technology is European, but also to make sure that ultimately this transition is, is actually accessible to everyone and leaves no one behind in European countries yeah. as we, you know, get away with. And the last message, maybe to summarize, is to say the real challenge, the challenge now today, the most urgent one, is around securing raw materials. I believe we can do this. We need strong policy to do this. And there are two things that as we secure them, we need to think. So speed should not try quality. So we must do this in a way that's responsible, environmentally with high standards, but also in a way that brings us a diversified global economy rather than concentration in, in one or two countries. Got it. 
Got it. A very positive and very definitive message to finish on. So, Julia, thank you so much for your time. Uh, good luck with the rest of your work. And I look forward to bumping into you again sometime soon. So thank you for now. And thank you to everybody who's been listening in on the podcast or live. So for this episode, thank you and goodbye. Thank you. Bye, everyone. <laughs>